why it matters because when you talk about the dietary guidelines and people are kind of like whatever I guess that's something you guys are doing in Washington it's what's on your kids plate at schools what all the people do is they look at the dietary guidelines and say well they don't really say processed meats that bad and we're following that Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. This week in Washington, health officials will be sitting down to discuss a report that could reshape nutrition advice as we know it. It is the next step in the release of new dietary guidelines for Americans that are set to come out next year, early next year even. And it really comes at an interesting time because there is an abundance of science and data all pointing toward defining a healthy diet as one with less meat and more plants. In fact, the American Cancer Society recently released its own dietary guidelines that don't include red or processed meat. And that, of course, comes after the World Health Organization declared things like hot dogs and bacon to be Group 1 carcinogens. And red meat? I mean, so many studies show that it can increase the risk of breast cancer and colorectal cancer and prostate cancer. And then on the flip side, studies have shown that a plant-based diet is protective against cancer and countless other conditions and diseases as well, many of which we've discussed right here on the show. Now, as for dairy, well, Canada has de-emphasized it in its latest nutrition guidelines. Matter of fact, a headline in the Canadian newspaper, The National Post, shortly after the guidelines were released, the headline read, Got milk? Not so much. So that is a huge change in their guidelines, which also promote a plant-heavy diet. So then, where will things fall in the U.S.? Here in the U.S., where this year an estimated 1.8 million people will be diagnosed with cancer, and 606,000 will die from it. So we're going to be finding out shortly exactly where things will be falling. And on today's show, dietitian Susan Levin will be here. She is someone who has gone through this dietary guideline process three times now. You know, the USDA updates their guidelines every five years. So she is really familiar with the ins and the outs. She has her finger on the pulse of exactly what is going on. So Susan is here to give us an update on where things stand and to take a look at the current guidelines and where we may be headed. And I got to tell you, speaking of the current guidelines, taking a look at them, some of the recommendations, they just don't make a whole heap of sense. And you're going to hear more about that during our conversation. But what really struck me is that oils are promoted as part of a healthy diet. But then literally, on the next line, they're basically telling you that they're not healthy and they should be avoided. I'm serious. Like This is wild, contradictory information that's being put out there. So we're going to be talking about that with Susan momentarily. Then, Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis will be here for another plant-based Q&A guaranteed to raise your nutrition IQ by at least a couple of points. Going to be touching on a lot of things. And then also, <laughs> you're going to want to stick around for this. A new study finally answers the question... Why do people stockpile toilet paper during a perceived crisis? Researchers have actually studied up on this. Looking at the beginning of the pandemic, they went to dozens of countries, interviewed more than a thousand people to get some answers. And I will tell you about what it is that they found on the show today. But first... 
let's touch on those guidelines that will shape how millions will be eating for the next five years. Continuing on here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. And I am joined now by someone who knows these nutrition guidelines inside and out. She's worked intricately on, I believe this is the third round of guidelines she's had her hands in. With that, we welcome dietitian Susan Levin from the Barnard Medical Center to the show. Susan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Chuck? I'm doing phenomenal as well. And as I said at the top of the show here this week, the group of powers that be will be sitting down and they're going to be going over this research that will shape the dietary guidelines. Now, we have not seen the research or the report that they're going to be looking at specifically to craft their recommendations, but we do have our own recommendations, all of which are based on science. We're going to be talking about that in just a little bit, but let's start by taking a look at the current guidelines. Because if you open them up right at the top under key recommendations, it says that we should be consuming a healthy eating pattern that accounts for all foods and beverages within an appropriate calorie level. Now, also on this, key recommendation, Susan, and I, I, I want you to comment on this in the worst way. What is a healthy eating pattern? Let's, let's define what their healthy eating pattern is. I'm just reading this verbatim. It is one that has a variety of vegetables from all subgroups, dark green, red and orange, legumes, beans and peas, starchy, and other. And there's also fruits. They say especially whole fruits. That's great too. Grains, especially whole grains. Also great. Here's where the red flag starts, Susan. Fat-free or low-fat dairy, including milk, yogurt, cheese, fortified soy beverages, not so bad, then a variety of protein foods, seafood, lean meat, poultry, eggs, legumes, nuts, seeds, soy. And then here, here's, here's the particular head scratcher, oils. Oils are part of a healthy eating pattern. But then right below that, Susan, honest, I can't make it up. It says that you should limit saturated and trans fats, added sugars and sodium. Help me out because my mind is blown. That to me just seems a little bit contradictory. And by a little bit, I mean extremely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're just underscoring the, um, the whole problem with our dietary guidance, which is from whom they are distributed and that is in large part the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, and the name kind of says it all, right? This was a department that was created to prop up agriculture. And in this country, that largely means beef, poultry, dairy, eggs. I mean, those are, those are certainly the, the deepest pockets of agriculture. So you have this huge department. And I, I do believe of all the departments in Washington, it is the biggest. Um, and it seems so if you've ever gone down to their great halls and, and they're, you know, they have offices in Maryland, Virginia, DC, but their original location um, down next to the mall of Washington, DC, it is absolutely huge, but close enough that it's hard to understand how on this side of the building, they are trying to figure out how to get Americans to eat more cheese eat more meat, um, to eat more eggs and drink more milk. And then you go down the hall a ways and they're trying to give us nutrition guidance and by distributing the dietary guidelines. And in that, this conflict, this, this innate conflict that comes with the department itself just spills over into almost everything that seeps out of these guidelines. And it has taken, and as bad as they are, Chuck, when I was a kid, there were four food groups, <laughs> and it was meat, one food group, dairy, second food group. So that's half your diet right there, right? Uh, fruits and vegetables, that was kind of crammed into one group, and then bread, you know, that was kind of crammed into another group. So seemingly, um, you know, half our diet is supposed to be full of animal products, and that's just kind of how we were raised, and it eventually morphed into the, um, the pyramid, which people think was... Is, is old as the hills, but the pyramid was actually created 
um, many, many, many years later from the four food groups, morphed into my pyramid, it was a disaster, now we have my plate. All of these diagrams came out of the USDA. And they have been wrestling with themselves um, for decades, really more, you know, wrestling more with, with academics and people who know better. <laughs> I don't know how much they wrestle with themselves. I wish they'd wrestle more. But um, they've been called out for this kind of confusing information for years, ever since, you know, the 15 years I've been involved, but certainly much longer than that, where they just can't say anything that seemingly makes a lot of sense. And maybe there's something to keeping consumers kind of confused and in the dark, certainly about what they're not supposed to eat, but somewhat a little bit about what they're supposed to be eating too. And you nailed it. You nailed it right there with just like, what do you, how can you say oils have to be part of your diet, dairy, part of your diet yet, you know, watch out for things like saturated fat, um, added sugars, uh, you know, cholesterol. I mean, these are the kind of terminology, the kind of terminology they like to use. They're comfortable using, but it's mostly because nobody knows what they're saying. Like, what does that even mean to the guy in the grocery store who's shopping for food? Like, don't get cholesterol. <laughs> right. Don't buy your box of saturated fats. Like, well, that doesn't mean a lot to the average American. Right, precisely. This is nothing that I had ever even thought about considering until the last you know, four or five years when I've really tried to take my health to the next level and started to zero in on some of these things. And then having the opportunity to speak with you and, and your colleagues and other doctors and dietitians around the country. And then hearing about this, and now it, it, just, it just stands out and it smacks you right in your face like, what in the world is going on here? So back to the oils here. All right, limit your saturated fat, boys and girls, but then, you know, eat your oils. Vegetable oil. One tablespoon has two grams of saturated fat. Coconut oil. That same tablespoon, 13 grams of saturated fat, but it's healthy, right? So go ahead and include <laughs> right. that part of your diet. Like, I, I, I just, I don't even know. I just don't even know. Um, let me pull up the, uh, for those of you who are watching this uh, online right now uh, and not listening to the uh, podcast version of this, let me go ahead and pull up the USDA food patterns. <clears throat> so this is how much the standard, uh, well, they call it the US style eating pattern. Uh, this mm-hmm. is truly kind of the standard American diet. Let's just take a look, Susan, at how uh, much vegetables the average person should be consuming every day based off of their recommendations. Right at the top, it says only two and a half cups per day overall. That to me seems low. And I think that I might even think that as somebody who's not necessarily a health nut, just two and a half cups of vegetables when they're loaded with vitamins and nutrients and things, that to me seems low. Low to you as well? Yeah, so this so this is one of the healthy eating patterns they endorsed in the last iteration of the guidelines, the, the healthy U.S. eating pattern, which nobody had ever heard of. They made it up. And I think what they did was they took the U.S. eating pattern, which is pretty bad <laughs> and calorie dense, but nutrient poor, and kind of just put a tweak on it. Like, well, if it were a little bit better, it would look like this. And that's true. This is a little bit better than what the average American consumes. Like most Americans don't consume two and a half cups of vegetables a day. That doesn't mean you tell them, you know, you don't tell the two pack of cigarette smoker, the two pack a day smoker to smoke one pack a day, right? You tell them to quit. And this is sort of the one pack a day version of healthy eating. And, you know, it's, yeah, is it better? Sure. But I, I, I highly recommend that people consider that there's, there's much better. We could do much better by ourselves than eating two and a half cups of vegetables a day on a 2000 calorie a day diet, or go down further. If you have six ounces of grains or two cups of fruit, or really kind of like two servings of fruit, two apples, whatever, you could do much better. And we know from different studies that the more of those kinds of foods you consume, the more whole grains, the more fruits, the more vegetables, the better you do in terms of disease risk with diseases like cancer, diabetes. Um, So this really would be a big kind of like aiming, aiming low, you know, right here with this kind of dietary pattern. 
The other thing that really stands out to me in particular, so the, the bold numbers are per week on average, right? Per day for the entire week. But then for the entire week, okay? Not on average, but for the entire week, these are the numbers that are not in bold. And right under dark green vegetables, it only says one and a half cups per week. Yeah. Even again, before I was, you know, came into the health and nutrition world, I was told that leafy greens are maybe yeah. the healthiest thing that you can eat on planet earth. Mm-hmm. And yet you're talking about only a cup and a half for the entire week. A cup mm-hmm. and a half of leafy greens isn't even enough to give you a side salad. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, it's, it's no wonder that they kind of, um, yeah, that's right. They're always like, you're, you need to eat your greens, you need to eat your orange, greens and orange. Green. And then in the text of a dietary guidelines, will tell you what, what Americans are really lacking is the dark greens and, and the dark orange colored fruits and vegetables. Um, so why they decided to really skimp on the greens and that particular recommendation, other than that they go on to heavily endorse dairy products. And we know that the stuff, the good stuff that you might get out of a dairy product like calcium, you get in spades in a much healthier form of a green leafy vegetable so the fact that they're sort of like, well, eh, you don't need to eat your green leafy vegetables so much because we're going to really cram dairy down your throat, completely ignoring the fact that that's also where you, the number one source of saturated fat, um, you know, cholesterol dense food and its risks with things like cancer, breast cancer for women, prostate cancer for men. Um, they completely skirt around all that by really hanging on to that dairy endorsement that they're so married to um, for for obvious financial reasons. It also says uh, per week, 26 ounces of protein foods, which is meat, poultry, and eggs, according to them, plus an additional eight ounces of seafood. Again, you can find virtually everything that is in all th- four of those things uh, are also in plants. You're just cutting out the middleman here. Um, before we move on to the recommendations that we'd like to make for the next round of dietary guidelines, I'm curious, as the guidelines now are being crafted, and I think that they're going to be released early next year, is that correct? Yeah, so the report will be um, released this Wednesday. So that'll be a very long, often up to a thousand page long report that the committee committee of 20 this time will submit to the USDA and the Department of Health. And the Department of Health and USDA must filter that 1,000-page recommendation into the 100-page guideline. And it takes them about six months usually to do that. Is that report going to be made public or is that okay? Yep. So that'll be public Wednesday. And there should be some comment um, period allotted from the public. Um, and from advocates like PCRM to go in and say, you know, shame on you or bravo or, or whatever, kind of highlighting the good stuff and, um, and calling out the not so scientific stuff. Do we have any indication where things are trending as far as foods like red and processed meats, which have absolutely been, especially in the past five years, been put through you know, the ringer as more and more science has come out and said, hey, like these are things that you really don't want to be eating, up to and including the World Health Organization declaring processed red meats, you know, carcinogens? Yeah. Well, we don't have much indication. Um, we have some indication through rumor <laughs> that um, they're going to stick to the stick to their um, endorsement of plant-based eating. I don't know how they couldn't. Like, where, where else can you go? But just the fact that there's so much research to show how helpful it is and beneficial it is. Um, but, again, a big problem with the guidelines, it's not so much what's good. They just cannot bring themselves to say what's bad. Uh, again, they use the words like saturated fat and cholesterol. Um, they've come up with terms like solid fat. Don't eat a lot of solid fat. Well, what the heck is that? I mean, you really do need... Um, a decoder ring to kind of figure out what you're not supposed to be eating. And I've been in press conferences where respected journalists will stand up and just say to the secretary of agriculture, just say, don't eat meat. Like you dance around it. These aren't, you know, vegan or vegetarian journalists. They're just like, it's, it's clear to me what you're trying to say, but you just won't say it. And therefore the consumer is completely confused about what not to eat. 
And they, oh, we say what not do we say that? We kind of say that. It's like, no, you really don't. Um, so will they finally have really strong language, as strong as the World Health Organization or the American Cancer Society or the American Institute for Cancer Research, um, um, the World Cancer Research Fund, all these groups that say do not eat processed meat. There is no safe amount of a carcinogen of that level in terms of cancer risk. Will they go as far and, and be that strong in their language? I hope so. But historically, um, they've kind of, you know, avoid, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the healthiest. You know, they're just very um, skittish. They're very skittish about saying what not to consume because, like I said, few doors down, they're trying to figure out how to get Americans to consume more of those products. Um, I don't know. You've probably had a program on checkoff um, oh, yes. promotions and it's that, you know, that's what they do. They, they, they come up with campaigns, got milk, incredible edible egg, you know, the other white meat, beef, it's what's, you know, they have so many campaigns that they have developed to get us to eat more of these foods that make us sick. So how do you reconcile that? I'm not sure you can, honestly. So, you, so again, be self-educated, um, read between the lines if you have time. Uh, and, but we're happy to do that for you. So we will definitely pick apart these, um, these recommendations in the report and then ultimately the guidelines themselves. Well, real quick before we get into, again, our recommendations, let's talk about what it is they're doing up in the Great White North, up in Canada, because mm. they have really taken a hard stance, I believe, against dairy with their guidelines. What is it that they're mm -hmm. saying in Canada? Yeah, so for the first time, uh, you know, people before the guidelines in Canada came out a year or two ago, um, their updated version, there was, there was a big rally around, like, you got to stop promoting these animal products that make people sick. Uh, but Canada has a lot of the same issues we do, a lot of agriculture up there, a lot of money in agriculture. So, so you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of faith that they would do the right thing. But lo and behold, in terms of government recommendations, pretty good. They actually really endorsed plant-based. They took their dairy, the prominence of dairy in their recommendations out. They kind of jammed them into the, you know, the, the mysterious kind of protein section. Um, but that's kind of a huge step. If, if we did that, right now we have this plate with fruits, vegetables, be, uh, sorry, fruits, vegetables, protein, and grains issued by the USDA. We also have this giant cup that says dairy on it. Um, it's not a food that is necessary by any stretch of the imagination. can make people very sick. Why is it there? It's just so obvious that it's, um, it's a paid-for paid ad. But in Canada, they said no more. You know, they took it out. They jammed it in a subsection of another group. And that is huge. And I think what's even more important is they recognize that they can't endorse this product that so many people um, can't digest. The majority of the population of the world is lactose intolerant. Canada is a very culturally, ethnically diverse country. Um, and they just said, we can't do it anymore. We can't be telling people to drink this thing that makes them sick. We're, we're, we're not all Northern Europeans here, uh, never, nor have we ever been, but we certainly can't be the dominating voice, nor should we anymore. And I would love, I would have loved to have seen the states be the leader in that. Alas, it's okay to be influenced um, by Canada and say, you know what, you're right, we too, shouldn't be making recommendations that only a subset of our population by and large of Northern European descent can tolerate. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to take that dairy out. All right. Well, let's talk about the recommendations that we are planning on making. And I know that one of the four, because we, we we're putting out four big recommendations here. One of the four is shifting to water as opposed to milk. How big of a difference do you think that that would make overall uh, in Americans' health if indeed milk was taken off of the table and replaced with good old H2O? Right. So once a mammal has weaned from its mother's milk, guess what? You don't need anything else but water. Um, you don't really need soy milk or almond milk or any other plant-based. You don't need that. You need water. So we need to stop pretending that there's some mandatory human requirement for milk. It's ridiculous. So the difference it would make, I think, is A, that that enlightenment for people who think they absolutely need milk. Oh, it makes me sick, but I'm going to drink it because I, I 
think I'm supposed to have it. It's like, no, you're really not. Um, but you also eliminate this confusion around what people think they're supposed to be drinking with the, literally the number one source of saturated fat in our diet comes from dairy. And we just, we consume it like it's going out of style, whether it's fluid milk or, or cheese. Um, and it's making us sick. So imagine if we took that particular product, the number one source of saturated fat, off of this this imagery that makes us think it's it's not only healthy but it's mandatory it's like no 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 no. get that out of there normalize what is normal which is being um um, lactose intolerant and get the number one source of saturated fat out of our brains and it could make a big difference in terms of our health outcomes with you know heart health diabetes cancer weight um, let's, let's just remove that whole problem from the initial guidelines. And one of the things that I've read in the release that you put together with our recommendations, uh, just kind of mentioned that, uh, asthma was affected by dairy consumption as well. I'm not sure that that's a connection that a lot of people have made either. Yeah. So any kind of sort of respiratory issue, um, can be exacerbated by, um, by dairy, so when you talk about asthma, allergies, and just seriously, just, just better lung function, you really want to get dairy out of there. Colic with babies, um, getting dairy out can make a huge difference. And, you know, whether, whether you believe any of that or not, just try it. Just anyone out there who either has an issue with lung function, asthma, allergies, anything like that, um, or likes to exercise and uses a lot of, does a lot of aerobic exercise, get the dairy out for a little bit and see if everything doesn't improve. Skin, dairy also has a link to um, acne in humans. So get the dairy out, see what happens. You you don't have to listen to me or anyone else, um, but I would bet you it wouldn't take you long to figure out like, oh, not only do I not need this product, it's actually been holding me back in a lot of ways. Just curious, before we, we get into the next one, what is your take on the notion that chocolate milk is the perfect recovery drink after a workout? I know that that probably has to be a big time head scratcher for you. Oh, it's a stomach scratcher. It makes me sick when I, when I, if I'm running and you ever done this where you're in a race or some kind of thing and there's someone running with a got milk, got chocolate milk shirt and it's the concept of it makes you like oh, a little bit nauseous. Why would you do that to yourself? There's absolutely, first of all, the primary fuel for exercise is carbohydrate, not protein. Um, so in and of itself, and then the fact that it does affect your, your lung function so poorly, like the irony, uh, irony is a nice word for that, right? It's just, it's actually so harmful to us for athletes, but also for um, anyone who just likes breathing and would like to maximize their their relationship with air. But I, I, I you know, I do want to endorse if you're really into the sports and dairy connection, check out um, Switch for Good or the number four, um, which is Dotsie Bausch, the Olympic cyclist. She was featured in the Game Changers. She started this group of athletes, professional athletes who were on dairy and really trying to get this information out to the public, particularly people who like to be physically active, about how they don't buy into that. In fact, the opposite, they see, they recognize the harmfulness um, and the ill effects that dairy causes people who want to be the best they can be in terms of physical performance. So check out her uh, website for any information about being an athlete, a dairy-free athlete. It's fascinating. I'm going to go ahead and give you the quote of the week award. Anybody that's a fan of breathing or air in general, go ahead and try taking dairy out of your diet and see how you feel. That's fantastic. Um, You mentioned uh, low carb diets, and I know that that's another one of our recommendations that we kind of not necessarily avoid carbs, but avoid bad carbohydrates. But what is the likelihood, do you think, with this next round of dietary guidelines that we will see an emphasis on these low carb diets that are so popular right now. Yeah. Um, if I were just looking at the research, I would say, no worries, don't worry. It's not going to be in there. But when I look up the makeup of the committee where there's one Atkins nominee on the committee, um, we know what they would like to see beef, 
reports that it nominated two of the committee members. So we know what they would like to see. So I am fearful. And there was a pretty good, well-organized coalition of low-carb people that came out to speak at the oral testimony opportunities and to post online. So I fear the committee will be infiltrated by trend and um, emotion for what the public would like to be in there versus what science shows us. And I don't even know if I would be that fearful um, under a different administration. I just, I, I worry about the relevance of science sometimes. And when these, this report has to get filtered through the USDA ultimately, I worry. I just worry what they're, they're willing to throw in there just to appease certain groups. Um, let me give you an example. In 2015, completely di different administration, um, there was an environmental, a sustainability component to the report that came out before the guidelines. Huge, first time they'd ever looked into it, spent a lot of time and resources and energy on the sustainability part of eating. And because the, the, the conclusion was eat more plants, fewer animals, that's how you have a sustainable um, food environment, meat went crazy. And not even on the down low. It wasn't like they had back backdoor meetings or meetings and alleys with people <laughs> on the front pages of newspapers and, and different literature pieces of, of the ilk, whether it's the magazines that are read on by Congress or um, anyway, they came out and said, absolutely not. We will not allow you to have a sustainability section of the guidelines because it tells people not to eat meat. No way. And the USDA was like, yeah, okay, cut it out. Just completely cut out that part of the report, never made it into the guidelines. And this round, they announced right up front, nobody talk about sustainability. We're not even going to listen to it. We're not going to consider it. It's not on the table. Um, you're just wasting your time if you want us to think about it. So there is a lot of, there's a big, there's a lot of power from the report until what comes out that is, that is, that they don't mind using. The USDA does not mind using their um, opinion, I guess, in what comes out in the final guidelines. That's politics. That's scar so that scares me. Yeah, it scares yeah. me a little bit. Politics in your plate. Uh, yes. So just a couple more here really quick. Uh, we know that about five years ago, the World Health Organization comes out, classifies bread, processed meat as the carcinogens, as, as we mentioned. Um, that is another one of our, our big time recommendations here. We've kind of talked about the odds that that gets taken out uh, of, of this updated set of guidelines. But if for some reason they do come out, and we, there is this groundswell that, that is more and more saying, hey, processed meat, not the way to go. If Americans were to take processed meat off of their plate, how many fewer cases of cancer, diabetes, all of these connected uh, comorbidities, as it were, you know, how, how many fewer cases would we be seeing? Wow. If people stopped consuming processed meat altogether... I I wouldn't even I wouldn't even know how to quantify given it's um, all the components of a processed meat product. Yes, it's a carcinogen. Got that group A. Got it. Group one um, carcinogen, uh, meaning it causes cancer. It's not associated with cancer. People who consume it have higher risk of cancer. it causes cancer. So to take that off, um, and it's not just even though colorectal cancer is kind of the big one, it's pretty much tip to tail where the risk arises in terms of cancer um, association throughout the digestive tract with processed meat. So that is, there's so many different forms and types of cancer, so many different people's lives, so many numbers of lives. But yes, it is associated with risk for diabetes. And one third of the American population has diabetes or prediabetes. So can you imagine if we were to affect um, one third of the population? Plus it is just loaded with things like sodium. So imagine then with high blood pressure, something that, that riddles the adult population and oftentimes younger people too in this country, if we took that major source of sodium out of their diets as well. 
I don't even know how to quantify in terms of lives that could be saved in just in just that one product is so overtly risky. Um, I mean, how, how do you quantify how many lives have been saved over the trickling in of acceptance that tobacco causes cancer? It took the government a really, really, really long time to catch up with science. And I don't know how many lives were lost as they dragged their feet, but I don't really want to continue to find out when we have so much research behind processed meat. Um, I don't know why the government would want to drag its feet on something that is so obvious. Um, but hopefully when these reports come out and these guidelines come out, the more and more people just say, you can't tiptoe around something that is so overt and in your face and everyone else has already agreed um, can kill you. Like just own up to it, admit it. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful. And here's why it matters. Because when you talk about the dietary guidelines, and people are kind of like, whatever, I guess that's something you guys are doing in Washington. It's what's on your kid's plate at schools. And when we try to change something with school lunch or improve school lunch, what all the people do is they look at the dietary guidelines and say, well, they don't really say processed meat's that bad. Um, and, and we're following that. Those are our guidelines. So we got to change those in order to trickle down, change what's on a kid's plate at school, what's on... Um, in a package delivery of Meals on Wheels, which served in a state-run um, um, home for people for elder, people who are elderly, uh, in the in military, what's going on in the military and what they're eating. If it's not in the dietary guidelines, it's it's not everything else. Just sort of is is stagnant in terms of science and being updated. You know, I used to be an everything's better with bacon guy. And certainly that is not the case any longer. Like I look at bacon the same way that I now view cigarettes. As a matter of fact, I almost wonder if it was worse to eat bacon every day than it was to be, you know, a pack and a half a day smoker. I, I honestly don't know if I can measure up the two. I know, how do you, right? It's kind of, it's like, you know, am I going to die if I smoke one cigarette a day for the rest of my life? I don't know. But why would you want to even, like, we know it causes cancer, so just mm. don't do it, you know? I kind of feel that way about processed meat and red meat, which to me has the same amount of science showing it's carcinogenic. carcinogenic. Um, it's like, why, why even risk it? Like, we know it causes cancer. Just, just no. All right, and the final uh, recommendation here, continue to promote plant-based eating patterns. Huge, absolutely huge. More than I would assume that cup and a half of dark green leafy vegetables every week. Yeah, so if you do, cause, so that was the healthy U.S. eating pattern, some made-up eating pattern um, that made somebody feel comfortable at the USDA. But they actually have a plant-based eating pattern table in there as well. Um, and it, of course an asterisk of how to do it if you're completely vegan. And of course it means more vegetables and more dark leafy green vegetables and more fruits and more beans. Um, it's obvious just when you look at the text of what you should be eating on a plant-based diet that you would just do better in terms of all these disease diseases that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, eating more of these healthful foods, eating more of the rainbow. And, you know, I hate, I hate to be, um, resting on our laurels for what we've gotten thus far. But I just, you know, I just really hope this committee and ultimately the USDA don't roll back the progress we've already made in terms of plant-based eating. Again, I don't see how they could do it without just completely being um, shamelessly oblivious to science. But, you know, occasionally our government is shamelessly oblivious to science. So, so let's just, you know, we have to stay diligent. We have to stay on top of them. And we just have to keep hammering home that they have to stick to the evidence-based research. So after this report comes out Wednesday, what are the next steps? Uh, it's time to, you know, we've been proactive. It's time, time to get reactive to the report, um, pick it apart, uh, find out where they went astray, <laughs> and then... I hope that the, when the guidelines come out, not hope, work towards a guideline that is evidence-based. And if um, so that means not only being reactive to the report, but proactive in terms of what ultimately gets documented in the 2020 guidelines. 
All right. So I guess Wednesday, you're going to have your do not disturb sign up. You are going to be just nose deep in a thousand pages of nutrition stuff. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Clear your calendars. You know what? I'm not even going to bother sending you an email until next week. I'm going to give you a solid seven days to look this over, but I I would love to get you. I would love to get you back on the show soon so we can talk about what was in the report because I think that really that's going to give us a huge clue as to what could be coming here in a few Mm -hmm. months when those Mm -hmm. new guidelines are officially released. Absolutely. I would love to come back and talk about it again. All right, Susan Levin, you are the best. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Chuck. In addition to breaking down the nutritional nuances of the guidelines, Susan and others here at the Physicians Committee have been working tirelessly to ensure that they reveal the conflicts of interest from the meat, dairy, and egg industries, those same conflicts that we were talking about during the interview. And Susan and company also want to warn about the dangers of cholesterol and saturated fat, and perhaps most importantly, that the guidelines call for less meat, less dairy, and more plants. All right, moving on. It is time to raise our nutrition IQs by a point or twos. Recently, doctors Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis joined me on the exam room live to answer a ton of questions from viewers, like one from Lori, who wanted to know whether canned or dried beans were the healthier option. And Sarah wanted to know, she's vegan, but the rest of her family isn't, so she was curious whether white or dark meat was the lesser of two evils, which had more cholesterol. And Dwight wanted to know what would happen if all the meat markets in the world were to shut down. Great questions. And great answers, they're coming up right about now. Dr. Barnard, we're going to start with you. This comes to us from Sarah on YouTube. She wants to know, does white or dark meat have more cholesterol? I'm guessing both should be avoided, but I'm the only vegan in my family. So which is the lesser of two evils? Okay, well, first of all, it's great that you're a vegan in your family because the not yet vegan family members will benefit from your presence. Um, And what you're hinting at is exactly right. There is uh, cholesterol in both dark meat and white meat chicken, and the amount is not greatly different. The fat content is lower in the white meat, uh, higher in the dark meat, but but even in the white meat, it is not low. The figures that I showed you earlier were for typical chicken breast. Um, So if you take chicken breast, chicken white meat in general, and you take the skin off and you don't add any fat to it, it is still about 23% of its calories are nothing but fat. So um, no, don't don't eat it. There's plenty of other good things to eat. Dr. Loomis, this one comes from Lori on Twitter. She writes, I always use canned beans, but are dry beans any healthier? Are they healthier when you eat them straight out of the can? Is it better to cook them? What say you, sir? Well, canned beans are cooked, so you don't have to worry about that. I, I And there's no evidence that canned beans are less nutritious than, say, beans cooked in your, your dry beans, which have been cooked, say, in your Instant Pot. Uh, the one caveat, though, is some of the dry, cans of dried beans do have uh, salt added, and which can be a problem. So uh, I usually recommend if you're using canned beans um, that you rinse them off. Try to buy the low-salt variety if that's available, and be sure you rinse them off uh, uh, well before you use them to remove any excess salt. But there's absolutely no difference in the nutritional value between the two. Dr. Barnard, back to you. This one from Dwight on Facebook writes, Chuck asked Dr. Gregor last week, what would happen to our health if all the meat markets in the world were to shut down? I would love to get your take on that. Uh, What a wonderful thought. Um, if, if, if meat sales ended worldwide, obviously several things would happen. Um, first of all, animals would all be waving white handkerchiefs and thanking us. Um, the earth would breathe dramatically easier because you wouldn't be raising feed grains to using huge acreage to feed animals. Um, from a standpoint of health, there would, the, 
the saturated fat and cholesterol intake of the human diet would drop dramatically, particularly if people also stopped consuming dairy because dairy products are actually the biggest source of saturated fat. If the dairy stays in the diet, if the cheese stays in the diet, uh, we're not really getting there because it's, it's a bigger source of saturated fat. Uh, infections would go way, way, way down. Um, probably three quarters of the infections we get are animal derived. Um, I'm talking about they, they pass into human culture from an animal vector. So yeah, the world would be a much better place. All right. And sticking with you, actually, this one is from Elizabeth on Facebook. She writes, with all the viruses that we're exposed to, how have we and how do we live in harmony with them throughout our lifetime? Well, that's the function of the immune system. Um, there are viruses that are not harmful to us. There are others that can be. Um, and if we did not have a functioning immune system, you would be dead within the first couple of weeks of life. Um, and in fact, there have been, as you may remember, there have been some extremely unusual cases of children born without functioning immune systems. One very famously back in the 1970s was uh, immediately at birth put in a bubble. The immune system is limited, and that's why when we introduce patho pathogenic bacteria by messing around with nature in ways we shouldn't, uh, we run into trouble. Dr. Loomis, coming to you. This one is from Sash on YouTube. Is grass-fed milk really as bad as meat and eggs? I am a vegetarian. Well, uh, you know, it, it, if you're a baby cow, then probably grass-fed milk is great. But we are not baby cows. And if, if you think about what milk is, I mean, milk is a biologic fluid that evolved for, for any mammalian species, evolved to take baby mammals of that species and turn them into mammals that are big enough to find food on their own. And once we do that, we don't need our mother's milk anymore. That's why you don't see, for example, human milk on the grocery store shelves. So the idea that we should be drinking any milk from a mammal that evolved to take a 70-pound cow and turn it into a 700-pound cow that doesn't make sense biologically, evolutionarily. And, we, and there's lots and lots of studies that show that, the over, that, that, that consumption of milk has adverse consequences and raises your risk for many chronic diseases. So the, the, the test I, I ask my patients to, to perform if, before they decide to drink milk is to call their mother up on the phone. And if their mother answers moo, then it's okay <laughs> to drink cow's milk. And if not, they probably should just leave it alone. <laughs> oh man that is fantastic uh stick sticking with you dr loomis we have a question that's can so I, 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 can i borrow that jim do you mind yeah sure sure <laughs> do that <laughs> All right. Uh, this one from Raven Brown on Facebook came in at 1209. Uh, Dr. Loomis, she wants to know what is the best way to transition from junk food vegan to next level vegan being whole food plant-based? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the problems with, with adapting new dietary habits is, is, is exactly is the, is the operational word habit that, you know, we, we develop these habits around food Food is comforting. We have social situations we consume food in. We, we use food in certain um, emotional situations. And so one, one, one strategy I've used is to have people, you know, if you think about food in two, we have, we make food choices out of two boxes, a healthy box and an unhealthy box. So um, one strategy I've found helpful is to, is to have you have people think through the junk food, the, the, the unhealthy vegan foods they're eating. In, in the unhealthy box and, and pick one thing each week, for example, and, and find a healthier alternative and just focusing on say um, soda, right? Soda is vegan. Um, so this week I'm going to drink water instead of, of, of soda, you know, next week um, I'm going to take potato chips and I'm going to start making my own chips in an air fryer where I'm not going to use any oil. Uh, so each week you take one thing out of that unhealthy box and, you know, pretty soon, guess what? You've replaced, you've thrown that unhealthy box away and, and now you're just left with foods in a healthy box. So that, that's one strategy is to, because sometimes it can be overwhelming, especially if you're eating a lot of, of, of vegan junk foods. Um, it's just to focus on small changes each day or each week and slowly but surely you will adapt to healthier lifestyle. Dr. Barnard, coming to you, this one is from Daniel on YouTube. How do you respond to people who say that whole food carbs like fruit and whole grains and potatoes are bad for you because they spike your insulin and therefore we should only be eating a high-fat, low-carb diet? Okay, the, 
well, first of all, I guess it's useful to understand what carbohydrates are and what they're for. Um, your body runs on glucose. Your muscles run on glucose. Your brain runs on, on glucose. That's the simple sugar that your body uses in the same way as your car runs on gasoline. So this comes from the food that you eat, and we're adapted evolutionarily to pick fruit or, or eat starchy vegetables, and our body extracts the glucose that goes into cells. Where we run into trouble is if your body develops a condition called insulin resistance. That's when the insulin key no longer opens the cell to let the glucose inside. So your, your blood sugar gets high. Um, and so for many decades, people thought, well, maybe I shouldn't be eating apples and shouldn't be eating rice. And I shouldn't eat those because my blood sugar will get higher and it causes me to make more insulin. And then about 15, 20 years ago, researchers discovered what's causing the insulin resistance. And it actually has nothing to do with eating apples or, or eating starchy foods. It has to do with fat, fat, builds up in the cells. And as fat builds up in the cells, insulin can't work anymore. So the answer to diabetes and to, to, to make your sugar behave is to get away from animal products and the added oils, and then your insulin can work again. So um, the, the, the best thing to do to, to keep your insulin levels at their lowest is to follow a healthy plant-based diet. Uh, that allows your insulin to work most efficiently. Um, one last thing. Uh, what every medical student learns in the first year of their studies, but then forgets immediately after that, is that insulin has one job to, to pull sugar into the cells, and it has a second job to take protein and take pull it into cells also. So if you're eating fish or other high-protein foods, that overworks your insulin also. So skip the animal products. Plant-based diet is the way to go. Dr. Lomas, a great question from Lisa came in at 1223. She writes, what can I say to my meat eating friends and family who say, I exercise every day, I'm a healthy weight, so why change my meat to veggies? Well, there's lots of reasons uh, for, for that. And um, um, there are lots and lots of studies. If you look at, at many of the chronic diseases that, that, that I see every day here at the Barnard Medical Center, type 2 diabetes, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, heart disease, on and on. Almost all of those, if you look at the dietary correlates, number one or number two on the list is the consumption of animal fat and, and animal protein. Um, there was a study um, published in Cell Metabolism about three or four years ago that actually looked at, at, at middle-aged men and their risk for cancer um, and correlated with what kind of protein. And these were healthy, you know, healthy men. Um, it turns out that, that men who got most of their protein from animals had a 75% increased risk for, for all-cause death, markedly increased risk of, for of death from cancer, and a markedly increased risk, risk for diabetes. So it, it probably has to do with, with all that extra protein, um, activating insulin growth factor, things like that, which, which can promote uh, tumor growth. Um, we know that meat has high cholesterol. And... Um, there's no fiber. I think a lot of the chronic diseases that we see, as Dr. Barnard pointed out earlier, you know, there's no fiber in me. And I think a lot of the chronic medical problems that we, we put ourselves at risk for, in many ways, it's it's fiber deficiency. Um, and, you know, average American gets 15, 20 grams of fiber. And although you may feel well today and you may look well, um, you know, the, the combination of these lifelong habits of our dietary habits will eventually catch up with you. We see all the time people who have heart attacks, who have, you know, normal cholesterol, but you, you take a dietary, they, you know, they say, well, I'm healthy, I exercise, but then you take a dietary history and yeah, healthy is, you know, turkey bacon and, and eggs and, and, you know, low fat hamburgers and on and on and on. So there's lots and lots of reasons, uh, that, that are evidence-based to, to, to ditch the, the animals and use the high-fiber, low-fat, plant-based diet for optimum health. You know what has fiber? Beans. And at 1225, Horace wrote and said, I love beans, but Dr. Loomis, how much is too much? Well, I, you know, personally, I, I eat a lot of beans. Um, I, I don't know that you can put an upper limit. I mean, it's important that you get a well-balanced diet. So if you look at, if you look at the PCRM uh, power plate, for example, um, 
you know, we need to get some of our calories from, from legumes. It's a great source of protein and fiber. But also we know that green leafy vegetables are very important um, source of vitamins and minerals. Um, also fruits. Um, so, you know, I think that when you think about constructing your food every day, about a quarter of your diet, of your calories, consumably should come from you know, something like legumes, um, things like that. The rest being whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, the other three quarters. And I think that would be a, a one way to kind of think about it. All right. Uh, HS, this is pre-recorded, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I assure you it is not. Uh, okay, <laughs> so this is, that's why they call it the exam room live. So go ahead and keep posting your comments in the comment box, and we will get to as many questions as we possibly can. Here's a really good one, uh, Dr. Bernard from Edith, came in at 1229, wanted to know what are the best vegan foods to reduce the effects of a high-stress lifestyle? I think a lot of us are feeling stressed right now. Yeah. You know, when, when people are stressed, um, there, there are a couple of things. Stress itself has, has negative effects, but also it disrupts your sleep. Um, and if you're not sleeping well, then the next day you're, you're feeling crummy. And so you'll eat anything just to get through the day. And so the stress is acting on our food choices, which get worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think the, the I think the best thing to do is to, to realize that even if you're stressed, even if you don't feel like it, it's good to just power into a healthy diet and to keep up your exercise to the extent you can. Uh, some of the best advice I ever got regarding exercise was uh, from somebody who told me, they said, you know, there, there are times when you may not feel like exercising. Just do it anyway. You're never going to really feel like exercising. Just do it anyway. And then once you get into it, you're into it, and you're glad you did. So don't wait for yourself to, to want to do it. So the same is true with food. Um, it, it, sometimes we want to have some junk thing. But now is the time to really power into healthy foods, and you're going you're gonna to be glad that you're doing it. But with, with regard to this, the healthful foods, just what Jim mentioned, think of four groups. Vegetables, power up the vegetables, cook them adequately so they don't give you indigestion. Um, but really favor the vegetables. Fruits, super great. You can't go wrong with them. Whole grains and the bean group, you're going to do well. Dr. Loomis, a while back on the Exam Room podcast, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, by the way, uh, we did a show where we kind of posed the question, how old is too old to go vegan? And along those same lines, Cynthia at 1231 posted a very interesting question. She said, I ate meat for over 60 years. Now I am plant-based. How long does it take for our bodies to regain the elasticity in blood vessels? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so we know as people, we, we, we know as, as, as individuals age, uh, we, the connective tissue in our bodies, including the connective tissue in our, in our blood vessel walls, um, um, becomes less elastic. Um, and, and, and that's why as you get older, you may be at increased risk for straining muscles and pulling ligaments and things like that. But it also is one of the reasons, for example, that your blood pressure uh, tends to rise as you get older. Um, so, so, it's, you're never going to be able to have the blood vessels of a 20-year-old um, when, when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. But you can certainly minimize the effect of that natural aging process uh, very quickly, actually, by, um, by transition to plant-based diet. And if you use, say, blood pressure as a marker for that, um, I've seen patients, uh, you know, in their 60s and 70s come off their blood pressure medicine in, in a week or two, um, who really went all in on a low salt, high potassium, high fiber, low fat diet. So, so you, you will see improvement quite rapidly. And, and, you know, being a 60 year old myself, I, I can tell you that, that, that after I transitioned to a plant-based diet, my injury, my injuries, running injuries and things like that plummeted. I mean, I still get aches and pains every now and then, but, but I think that, that, that the, the fact I follow a, a, a fairly, a low fat, high fiber plant-based diet uh, has allowed me to continue to exercise at a pretty high level injury free. Time for just a couple of more questions. So if you have one, sneak it into the comment section right now. Uh, this is a great one. I, I really just love this user's name. Lori loves lettuce. And don't we all, Lori? Uh, she, she writes, how do we respond when people state that protein from animal products is not the same quality as plant protein? Dr. Well, Barnard? Uh, what can we say? Uh, your body does need protein, but it doesn't need a huge amount of it. 
Um, and you'll get the essential amino acids, whether you're getting plant protein or animal protein. Um, the, the sort of the 1950s view was that plants don't have all of the essential amino acids. That click, uh, quickly became uh, known to be untrue, that if you look at, at plants, you will see all the essential amino acids, which are the protein building blocks, not only in a plant-based diet, but you'll see it even within plant-based individual plant foods. If you analyze the amino acids, you'll, you'll see for the vast majority, or maybe all of them, um, they have the essential amino acids, but they do have them in somewhat different uh, proportions. So it's good to get a variety of plant foods, but you don't need animal products at all. The biggest problem you have with animal products is you end up with too much protein and you get all the baggage that comes along with it. Uh, you get the fat and you get the cholesterol, which you're not going to get from the plant sources. Um, and, and then you don't get what you need. If, if you get your diet from plant sources, you get the, the complete package. You get the protein, the complex carbohydrates for energy, the vitamins, the minerals, the antioxidants. That's just dramatically better nutrition that you're not going to get from a pork chop. Dr. Loomis, final question comes to you. It's from Jesse on YouTube from 1235. She really wanted this question asked. I mean, all caps here. How long after a very oily meal will that oil have an impact on a cholesterol test? How quickly of an impact is there? Well, you'll see triglyceride levels rise uh, very quickly within a few hours of, of eating. Um, total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol do seem to be more dependent on dietary patterns as opposed to individual meals. Um, you, you can see a slight increase, but, but, you know, if you've got normal cholesterol and you have one high fat meal, it's probably not going to drive, drive your cholesterol up too, too bad. Now that doesn't mean that that high fat meal doesn't have an effect on you physiologically. It's been shown that high fat meals, even within a couple of hours of consumption can affect, um, um, endothelial function, endothel the, the endothelium is the inner lining of the blood vessel wall that controls the blood vessel's ability to contract and open appropriately. And, and so when we have endothelial dysfunction, especially in the presence, say, of, of, of coronary artery disease, uh, that, that can really cause some problems. So, um, but again, you will see triglyceride levels rise quite quickly with, uh, with one, a single high-fat meal. And we know that high triglyceride levels do serve as an independent risk factor for heart disease and chronically elevated triglyceride levels may increase your risk for diabetes. It may be a marker actually for insulin resistance as well. You can always send a question to the show on Twitter and Instagram at WLC and at PCRM on Twitter and then over on the gram again at WLC and at Physicians Committee. Just make sure that when you send in that question, you use the hashtag exam room podcast. And then also you can join us for the exam room live Monday through Friday on Facebook and YouTube. That is at noon Eastern guaranteed to be the healthiest half hour anywhere online today. Dr. Barnard and myself, we would love to have you join us. So set your appointments noon Eastern, Monday through Friday over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. So you remember panic buying being a big deal when the pandemic first began? Finding toilet paper was next to impossible. At bulk warehouses where the mountains of toilet paper were usually piled high to the ceiling, those mountains disappeared, while the shelves at stores were as bare as your bottom in the shower. And some companies even reported sales of TP surging by 700%. And that puzzled so many of us. So what is it? that makes this roll of soft paper so special. What about it brings us such comfort? Well, finally, we may be getting some answers because a new study is breathing fresh air into the mystery of tissue for your dairy air. It turns out that the answer is quite simple. People who feel the most threatened by the coronavirus tended to buy more toilet paper. This was a study of more than 1,000 people spread across 35 countries. And it found that those who worry and feel anxious, those are the people who tended to be the biggest hoarders. 
and then some other personality traits that factored into the whole TP thing, well, those would be organization, diligence, perfectionism, and prudence. If you had prudence on your list of guesses as to why people hoard toilet paper, well then, two points for you, my friend. Um, other findings in the study, older people are more likely to stockpile than younger people, and Americans are more likely to make panic purchases than Europeans. But researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology also say they haven't wiped this mystery clean just yet. There's still a dingleberry or two of truth to be uncovered. Okay, yeah. Oh boy. Uh, you can find a link to that study in the episode notes if you want to research it a little bit more for yourself, man. It's just some interesting stuff, right? Anyway, one final favorite to ask. If you are not yet listening to us on your favorite podcast provider, please head over to Apple Podcast or wherever shows are available and subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee and help make the world a healthier place. Because every new subscription and five-star rating helps someone else who needs this potentially life-saving information because it helps us climb higher in the podcast ratings. And the closer the show is to the top, the easier it becomes for people to find all of this wealth of health. So let's give them a helping hand and subscribe. And when you do, also leave a five-star rating to pay forward everything that you've learned here today. My thanks again to dietitian Susan Levin, as well as doctors Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>